Yes. All right. Next, next. Can you believe we're almost at the end of series two? Yeah. We're almost at the end of series two, though. It does feel like we're making progress because these, the way they've broken these down, they're a little bit shorter than some of them. It, it makes it kind of fun that way. You feel like you're moving forward, right? Um, so I, that was excellent prayer, Susan. I've, I was thinking what, what you were saying about, you know, that we want to, we do want to be those who learn the things that God wants us to learn and that we would be those who walk faithfully and, you know, that we would follow in the steps of our, um, our example, David, not Jeroboam, right? And I think about Ahab and all the things that he did. And we had one little glimmer, did we not? Where we thought maybe he was repenting, right? And, and I, and I thought to myself when I, read the, that chapter that was last week's week before last homework right and I remember reading that and thinking wow I didn't know Ahab repented nobody ever told me that well that's really cool did you do that too no but but he humbled himself but still still it it's an act of repentance and for that God then did not move forward with the, ju- the judgment at that time. And, and I have to ask you a question then. So what, what do you think that was all about? Why did God delay in judging Ahab at that point? <laughs> to give him a chance to actually move forward with that. I mean, have you known people to, in your life to demonstrate at least a small amount of, of humility before God and it looks like maybe they're coming towards relationship with God and really humbling themselves fully that they would let God be both Lord and Savior and yet a few weeks pass and then a few more weeks pass and then pretty soon they're right back to their their good old same tricks right so did we see that with Ahab seems like he falls right back into his old wayward ways and it that he didn't really learn a thing, did he? <laughs> and I, what, do you th- what do you think about the Lord in how he's dealing with this? What is this showing us? Mercy. I mean, how many chances, and, and that poses a good question. How many chances does a person get? At what point do you cease to have a chance? Death. That's exactly right. As long as God blesses you with breath of life, there's opportunity for you to repent. And I, I thought about Ahab, and I thought, as bad as he was, and you can think of the worst person in the world in your mind, you know, Adolf Hitler or Stalin or, you know, it's one of these people that's just horrible and evil or Jeffrey Dahmers or, you know, just horrible people. And you think about the fact that as long as they had breath, there was still opportunity even for them to repent and that God would have saved them. And we see Ahab's life, and that's, that's the example I think that we're, we're seeing through Ahab is God stayed his hand of execution. He went through with it with Jezebel, but he stayed his hand for Ahab for a period of time, giving him yet more opportunity to actually make it right with the Lord. And this week, what we came to see then was he did not. All right, so let's look, take a look at this. Now, um, one of the things I wanted, hold on. Oh, did I not print it? 
Oh, I did. Here it is. All right. Uh, I want to go back. One of the things that I did was I pulled out a old sheet that I did for us in our last um, series about context setting and about the date and the authorship and so forth. And I just pulled out a couple of points from it just to kind of refresh, again, our minds. Um, and so I'm going to give you some points, again, just to keep in mind as you're going through the Chronicles and Kings. Um, in the Book of Kings, Kings mostly follows a, the political accomplishments. And it, and it struggles as uh, its, its accomplishments and its struggles. That's how I propose this. I'm sorry, my brain is still not clear. Kings mostly follow, follows political accomplishments and struggles as a result of either spiritual faithfulness to the Lord or having done evil. Okay, so the kings focuses on the political. The Chronicles follows more the spiritual, although it has political in it as well, but its major emphasis is more on the spiritual successes and failures, and it gives most of our details about those who spiritual, spiritually and have righteous acts and what they were. In other words, when we looked at Chronicles this week, we looked at chapters 17, 18, and 19, right? When you looked at those, did you notice which one actually followed very closely with 2 Kings? 18 did, right? So what did 17 have that, that came before it? What was, what was the insights in, in 17 that was different from what was in 18 Chronicles? <clears throat> did, you know, did you happen to make a comparison? Was one of the questions that Kay asked you to say, well, what, you know, if you were going to lay these out in a sequential order, where do they go? Where would they go on a timeline? What would come first, second, and third? And what was taught in the, the other chapters that's not caught in, taught to us in the Second Kings 22 or... First Kings 22. Okay, it, yes, Jehoshaphat, the emphasis is on those things which he did, did for God. And we see a lot of that recorded then again in the Chronicles, which is what I just had said to you, that the Chronicles mostly follows the spiritual insights. It shows us what a king was doing spiritually, whether he was following the Lord or whether he was not. And if he was, it, it actually records some of the details about exactly what he did do that showed that he was following the Lord. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. So what I thought was interesting was how it did give you, it does give you additional insight. So again, if you do a synoptic observation, we've talked about this before, right? I said, it's wonderful to go in if you have an opportunity to lay things out synoptically. So here's what I did on this. I laid out uh, side by side Kings and then these three chapters of Chronicles. Well, all of Second uh, Chronicles 17, none of it parallels with what's going on in 22, right? But when you get to 22, how much of it parallels? Well, oh my goodness, you, you may not be able to see it from here, but did you guys notice it was like word for word? You actually could go through and title your paragraphs exactly the same. Just different number of verses, uh, slightly off from one another, but you could almost follow verbatim, right? Right all the way down to the very end of it. So I thought it was interesting. There were 
I, I highlighted here's purple, here's purple, here's orange, here's orange, here's green, here's green. So I mean everything right down all the way to the very end. And then when you hit Second uh, uh, Chronicles 19, how does it change? How does it vary? Well, just slightly. In particular, the opening of Second Chronicles 19 gives additional an additional point or insight that that gives you a spiritual understanding of what's going on with the king uh, of Judah, right? So by laying them side by side like this, and if you didn't do it, it would be fun to go back, and now that you know what you're looking for, go give it a try, because it doesn't take that long once you know what you're doing. It's just a cut and paste into two columns, and then line them up side by side, and they literally line right up all the way down the scale until you come into the uh, the second part of the Chronicles. Uh, chapter 17 is different, and 19 is different, but 18 is almost verbatim, one, two, three, four, right down the line. Okay, so now let me see if I can get this back in the right order. All right, right, so now the other thing I wanted to remind you about was uh, what is, what seems to be the major problem that's going on in Israel that's causing them to trip and stumble all over themselves in their relationship with God. Idol worship. And, you know, we, this is nothing new for us. Those of us, especially, we did uh, uh, Ezekiel not too long back, and we saw it in there over and over and over. We saw in the uh, Ezekiel account the record of real specific things that they were doing, and God would say, this is what they did, and this, these were the abominations before the Lord, and then he would say things, and, and basically, one day, I am going to vindicate my holy name, right? So when Israel kept falling back into idolatry, what was the real major issue that God had with his people doing that? It's, an, it's truly an act of adultery. God actually called it that, didn't he? One of the Ezekiel passages, the whole thing was about, about the adulterous woman, uh, Judah, right? All right. Any other points? When, when you think about our relationship with the Lord today, when we consider um, the fact that we bear the name of Christ, right, and we we walk in the world that we're in. Do you feel that the church on the whole is doing a pretty good job of honoring the Lord today or not? Okay, and how do we relate or do you see any parallels between what's going on today and what was going on in the days of the kings that, are, that we're studying? So what were some of the norms in, in the days of the kings that they kept falling back on? Well, they were falling back on uh, different gods for different things. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. Pardon? Worshiping at high places, which was pretty standard. I thought it was interesting when Jeroboam, um, wasn't Jeroboam, um, 
which one was it that he said that when he committed those sins, it became, oh, it was, it was Ahab, that he, that he committed the same sins as, as those of Jeroboam, but for him, at a certain point, it became as if it was nothing to do those things. He took it so far, he went beyond the pale, and he, and his sins became so extravagant, so far out there. And when we consider what we see going on in our world today, and we want to make these parallels to what, what we're doing in our own personal lives, is it is so easy to give an inch and they take a mile, right? And the world does this too. As we look at the things that we watch on TV, consider what we see on TVs today and go back 20 years or go back 30 years. Could you imagine your mom or your grandmother popping in on our TV sets today, what they would say? I can remember when, when my grandma used to yell at hee-haw for some of the little things that they did, you know? <laughs> and now I think, hee-haw? Really, grandma? <laughs> that is nothing, right? So um, another one of the issues that I saw going on was the when you talk about... Um, the idea of, of falling into sins and things becoming the norm. Um, for you and I today, we talk about things like um, living with somebody out of marriage, for instance. Um, in the days of, of the kings, there was, an, there was something that they continually did that was really, actually it was forbidden by the Lord. Do you remember anything about the marriage qualities, right? So for us, it's not getting married and living together. For them, it was getting married, but married to somebody that was forbidden by, by the Lord for them, marrying Gentiles with the Jewish faith people. And so they were, what was the premise of that problem? What was the root to the issue there? Okay, say it again, Yoshiko. That's exactly right. So, and so when God brought Israel into the land, one of the first rules he gave to them back in Deuteronomy 7, if I remember correctly, there was a, a whole litany of things that the, you are not to marry. Do not allow your sons to marry their daughters or their daughters to marry your sons. Um, and because when they do that, as Yoshiko just pointed out, they will draw your hearts away from worshiping me, right? And so then... God told them, now, if, if you do this, what's going to happen? That's right. I'm basically, I'm kicking you out, right? Do we have any examples of God's? Is God consistent in this kind of um, discipline for people who disobey him? Where was another place where God kicked them out? Yeah, how about starting in the Garden of Eden? Talk about consistency. This is a consistent parent, right? He said, if you, if you disobey me, um, I will remove you off the land. And this is no different from what God had done previously. So when God brings judgment on man, Becky and I were just talking before class about, is God being fair? You know, sometimes we see the things that God does. And um, do you want to share some of Just one tiny mistake, right? Neighbor, neighbor, you know, didn't sow his vineyard and 
So the lesson that you've learned then by mulling this all, this is the part that's called meditating on the word of God day and night, right? That thou mayest to do according to all that is written therein. And then that thou, your way will be prosperous and successful. So when you consider the things that you've learned about God through all these years of, of studying inductively as we've done together as a precept group, what is it that you have found has been most valuable then to you when you come across things like what we're looking at here and every now and then you go well that just doesn't seem fair I, I mean I know we've all complained a few times we've looked at going it's like that doesn't seem fair it doesn't seem fair that God would be that harsh or be that strict or or be that um dogmatic on things but what is it that has helped you come back full circle so that in the end you're actually good with this yeah And where were you when I formed the, the foundations of the earth? And yeah. <laughs> okay. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, Carrie. So when God, when God does do, bring judgment, is his judgment fair and righteous and, and good? Does it feel fair and righteous and good when it happens to you? Have you had time? Yeah, not so much, right? I can tell you there have been times in my life when I know the discipline of the Lord has come. And what I have truly come to see is what Becky says, when you ponder back, when you think back on what has God shown me? through this inductive method, what is it, what are the principles that I'm learning? And if what we are learning is, number one, never violate your known doctrine. So when you say, well, God's not fair, you have to ask yourself, is God fair? And the answer is, of course he's fair. Um, when it comes to principles of right or wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, has God made those two things perfectly clear to us in his word? Does God um, warn us before he judges? Have we seen that in what we've been studying in Kings so far? How has God warned in the, in the books that we're studying right now? Okay, so the prophets come and the prophets give them fair warning. This thus saith the Lord, right? Yeah, we're all laughing about it, but you know, we, la we can laugh a little bit and, and kind of giggle about it, but then on the other hand, when it's us, do we, you know, do we take it as seriously? Because has God warned you and I about certain things? The, in the interesting thing is what Romans 15 says, that these things have been written 
for your edification and instruction that you would learn from them, right? So if everything has been written to teach us, and we're supposed to learn. Now think about Hebrews. Do you remember back in Hebrews chapter 4 where he says, you have, basically, you have been in faith long enough. You should be teachers by now, not just babies, still living on milk, right? And so there's this very strong rebuke by this particular pastor as he's preaching this sermon to them and saying that, that you know, judgment will come for the one who won't learn. And you've been given ample opportunity to know right and wrong. God has written it in his, in his word of God. And by the way, think about the story of Ahab. A man who's as wicked as Ahab was, and we haven't researched him much. Has anybody done any research on him as a king just historically to see what were some of the things he's done? I'm going to do that this week. And if you think of it, you might want to do it too. Just because I'm curious. Think about how patient God has been with him. And here we see him uh, in the previous chapter where he stayed his execution against his life. That God had said, I'm going to, you know, basically I'm going to wipe out your, you, your family, your, your name. And it's, I'm going to blot it out of the books. And then Ahab goes into, into a place of humility, puts on sackcloth. It, it, it's a for, at least it's an outward form of repentance, but obviously it wasn't a genuine repentance. How do we know it's not genuine repentance? How can I be so dogmatic about that? Because his behavior doesn't change. What you see him do in the very next chapters shows you that he's not come into repentance. So, you know, there's, there's also this thing that goes around, I think, in the church often is, you know, well, don't be so judgmental, right? You're not supposed to judge others. What do you think about that? Absolutely. There's to be a discernment, at, at least on, on the minimum, where to be able to discern. So that's where I spent most of my time this week was on that segment. And I dug through all those words, and I wrote them all out. And basically, the main, the main thought by God through all of this is that the word of God was supposed to produce in us the fear of God. Yes. Yes. They just don't want to. That's right. That's it. Yep. Yep. Boy, I tell you, and that's a hard lesson to learn, too, is that that sometimes God brings judgment. And sometimes judgment comes on the innocent as well. Sometimes the consequences of a person's sin affect others. Now, is that is that uh, a harshness on God's part? Is God being unfair? When, for instance, he takes the child of Bathsheba... And David's child, right? We remember that story. Um, we saw earlier with Jeroboam, his young son died, right? And a lot of it had to do with the sins of the parents, the things that the parents were doing, right? God said, I'm going to wipe out your whole family. Well, this little boy, what had he done? As a fact, do you remember what God said about him? There was something good in him. I love that. And yet the child died, Right? And so how do you reconcile that in your thinking about God's justice and mercy? You know, in, it certainly could be looked at from that, certainly from, from 
from us who are detached from it. Now, if you're the mother of that child, that would be a real hard thing, a bitter, bitter pill to take. But think of the mothers and the fathers out there who have lost children. Um, and sometimes you do wonder, Lord, why? You know, why do bad things happen? We talked about this also, Becky and I. Why do bad things happen in the world then? Are we exempt from living in this physical world that has sinful human beings who have bring about consequences often that affect everyone around them? So a drunk driver can hit your car and kill, kill you and, and your children or your husband and your young children, and then you're left behind to pick up the pieces and live with the pain, right? Are we, are, are we then to turn to God and say, God, why did you let this happen? It's not that God won't let us do that, by the way. He will let us. Um, and it certainly is the first response that most people would have. But as we're studying it and we're being objective, which is great to do this while you're, while you're objective about it because it gives you a place to be that um, you're able to more, use more logic and reasoning right now and establish what your understanding is about who God is in a, in a time when you're not in pain so that when, one day when you are in pain, those truths will come back to you and give you comfort. So what is it that you think we're to learn about sometimes these harsh realities that come because God judges and because God even allows bad things to happen for the sake of teaching something, right? Okay. That God is who he says he is consistently, and we trust in that. I know I did the study here. I was kind of like, you did that, God? And boy, I wouldn't have guessed that. And the blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, his yeah. thoughts are way above my You know, what, something you said there kind of made me think about the idea, too. Do you guys remember the dog theology, cat theology, right? And what the difference is between a cat and a dog? And the, do the, the dog says, oh... Um, the cat will, the dog will say, oh, you feed me, you love me, you take care of me, you must be God, right? But the cat says what? Oh, you love me, you feed me, you take care of me, I must be God. <laughs> okay. so, what, so what is your theology? Are you the center of the universe or is God the center of the universe? Who, who is it that is the sovereign almighty, the one who sits upon the the throne, who is exalted and high and lofty above the heavens, who is it that, that speaks and all this came into existence? Was it me? Was it you? So, so when God has laws and, and rules and principles, um, should our first gut instinct, our first knee-jerk reaction always be to accuse God of unfairness or injustice? No, it, sh it should not be our first response, although sometimes it is. And I know that every one of us have been there, and including me. When something has occurred in my life that has been so hurtful and so traumatic, your first response is, why God? Why did you do that, right? But in time and through this kind of a study, if you have the opportunity to really mull around these really difficult 
principles about life and about reality and about who is God and who is man and how does this universe really operate and work and what is God's designed outcome for all of us? What is his, what is his ultimate purpose and, and desire for all of us? And what, what do you think it is? Have you seen any glimmer in the things that we're looking here that what is God ultimately reaching for? Okay, that we would come to him. Yes. Isn't that an amazing thing, too? When you reach outside of yourself, how much more, when you're, the more selfless you are, the more healed you are as internally, really. Do you think that when we go through life in those easy moments, do you think the easy moments are what hone our faith more or the hard times? Absolutely. It's, they're the worst times, but, you know, they, there's an old saying, the worst of times, the best of times, you know. I think about that in relationship to God. You know, sometimes the worst of times are the best of times. It, Mm-hmm. Can you always do that, though, when you're in really deep pain? Do, or do you eventually get there, but you don't always start there, right? So, I, and I do think that, that we, we have a God that understands that. And it says that, you know, he came, he took on flesh, and he understands the infirmities of man. He understands the flesh of man. He did not have to take on flesh to come to know that. But he did so that we would know that he knows. He understands our hurt, our pain. He understands our weakness. He understands our, even our flaws, right? Um, but the fact that God allows us even the, the, the breathing space and the breathing room and the growing room that, that each of us progressively come. And I think about Ahab and what happened with him in that last chapter. That was, to me, like a real shocker because when I hit that chapter and it looked to me like Ahab had repented and I thought, why did no one ever tell me this, right? Well, it's because it, it wasn't a, a true repentance and it didn't hold fast in his life. Um, do you remember in Hebrews, one of the key uh, repeated phrases in there was that um, it's he who holds fast until the end, right, that is saved. And what we see with Ahab is that he didn't hold fast. He had a momentary uh, uh, sobriety. He, he kind of became sober-minded for a very short period of time where he realized what? Pardon? Okay. God has said to him, what was he going to do to Ahab and his family? Completely wipe them out. And did God use an example like Jeroboam? So did Ahab know about Jeroboam? Of course, right? And so by God saying, look, just like Jeroboam and just like, was it Basha that followed Jeroboam? And just like Basha, I'm going to do also to you. So 
right there, there's a consistency with God. He, he is no respecter of persons. He treats every single person in every generation consistently the same. So I think one of the things as we get ready to start diving into the details here on our homework, I know you're anxious to move on, but, um, you know, God, I think God wants us to understand that he's working toward a, a higher goal in our life. You know, we're living in the moment of emotions and situations and events that are going on, birthday parties and family gatherings and, and vacations and, you know, broken plumbing and remodels and whatever is going on in your life, right? Um, so we live moment to moment, but God, he has this eternal perspective. He's looking at that bigger that bigger point that he wants us to at least at least for a moment somewhere along the line take take pause and consider the eternal things of the Lord. Yes, Lisa. Yes. For the Lord has no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the things of the bride. Very good. So that be very careful. I had to go see what that meant because I did some digging. And it's the same charge that's given to Adam to guard the reason to keep. Oh, wow. To keep so, the garden and so till it. And it literally means to guard your heart. It literally means to persevere. It means to, to watch. And I find it interesting that in all So this is the second time today we've gone back to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? It's exactly what you're seeing here is he's saying, hey, I have no part in unrighteousness. That is not who I am. And, is it, and there's a, a verse that says, and do not ever accuse God of tempting man because he does not tempt man, right? The, the Lord... Often the workings of God, we can look at them as Becky and I were talking about, and sometimes, at least superficially in the moment, it can feel that sometimes, well, that doesn't seem fair. That seems really harsh. That seems like God is being, you know, just unfair and unjust. But because of inductive Bible study training, the training that you get in here is you are teaching yourself just what you said, to guard you're, you're teaching yourself how to be on guard so that you do not allow Satan to slip into the back, through the back door of your mind and cause doubt in your mind about who God is. God wants you to have an absolute authority in your, in your thinking about who he is, that he is exactly what we looked at last week. He is the Lord. He spoke this world into existence he is the sovereign over kings and nations. He raises kings up and he puts them down. And we're watching him do that in these texts. And the exciting thing is he's promised us a kingdom one day. What is the kingdom that we're looking forward to? One day, the heavenly kingdom. And, pre and previous to that, the earthly kingdom when Jesus comes to rule right here, right? So this kingdom, which is the eternal kingdom, it goes on into the eternal, right? But when, when we are persevering in this world, it is so easy sometimes to get wrapped around issues and circumstances and life's difficulties. And what I think what we're seeing in the, the Kings and the Chronicles, though, is 
it seems like these kings keep repeating the same kinds of mistakes over and over. They don't seem to, to be learning. But every now and then, there's one good guy that rises up. He's a shining star, and he does all. And you know what's really funny is, even if what he's doing seems, well, of course he should do that, right? But he seems like such a shining star compared to all those who came before him who blew it so badly, right? So even just doing it on a minimal uh, level of righteous living and righteous doing as a king, he looks like this, you know, rock star to, to us. And it's, it's a sad thing that that's true, but still yet, it's nice to see that there are, there are people in the world that do want to do what's right before the Lord. So, I'm, of course, the call is that that would be you and I as well, right? That we would want to. We see idolatry was the cause of the ultimate disaster and exile of Israel. And then uh, later, Judah followed Israel's fall into their um, same sin. The author refers us repeatedly throughout the scripture record to other writings as sources for further information. And this shows that he has uh, given only material that serves to accomplish his aim. I want you to remember that, that um, it's like, do you remember in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, where he says, if all the things that Jesus had written, if all the signs, the wonders, the miracles that Jesus had, had done had been recorded, the world could not contain the books, right? So we know that what was recorded in, in the Gospels on the whole, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, but particularly in, in the Gospel of John, um, that the only, the only ones that were actually recorded were those which helped to, to accomplish the author's goal, right? So likewise, the same is true in the record here. We are seeing, and, and I'm sure you've noticed it, because some of these kings, for instance, Asa, 42 years, was it, of being a king? And so he's got all these years, and yet there's not that many stories that are given to us about his life. Why not? Because he only gives us what he feels is necessary to, pr to show the points, to show the qualities about this king that accomplished this author's goal, right? So what do we see about what we think is going on for the author's goals then? For the writing of Chronicles and Kings, what do you think is the goal? Okay, that who would set their heart on the Lord? Okay, right. The, the people are to follow. In the, in the record of the Kings and the Chronicles, though, it is important for us to understand this is speaking about a national covenant. Okay? Do not get confused that this is a personal spiritual um, salvation message. It's not. This is talking about Israel being under a national covenant with their God. God has says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey... I will bring cursings. And have we almost verbatim been able to go back to even Deuteronomy or uh, the previous writings that are there and almost line up word for word when, for instance, Elijah, what happened with Elijah and the people in the land when they were sinning so much? What did God do? Stopped up the rain. Did he say that when he wrote in the book of Deuteronomy? If you, if you don't obey me, what's going to happen? I'm going to close up the skies. 
and there's going to be no rain. And there's going to be no fruit of the womb of the animals. The crops are not going to produce, right? All these various things were, have, have been told. So God always forewarns, and then God does exactly as he said. So these people have been forewarned, and, and he's doing exactly as he says. So that, again, is another point that God is always fair. He always, for, you know, think about parenting in your, in your personal life or grandparenting for some of us. Um, you know, you warn a child, this, don't do this or this is going to happen or please do this and then I will give you this reward, right? So you tell them what the plan is and then you expect them to, to act accordingly, correct? And that is how God deals with us. Okay, um, let me see. Um, so the single most important criteria for the author is what a king did or did not do concerning cultic worship of his people or worship of God. So that's where God, God is focusing on the spiritual, right? But in the kings, it's focused most upon the political things that he did. And in Chronicles, it's mostly focused upon the spiritual things that he did. If you haven't noticed that distinguishing difference, you might just want to make yourself a note that that just... In a, you know, many ways, it's almost um, logical when you think about it. The, the kings would be about kingship and that the chronicles would be a record about the spiritual. All right. Um, and then one last thing, again, is about the dating. I just want to remind you guys about that. Anyone who has attempted to reconcile the dates between the writings that are going on here, the kings and the chronicles, they are faced with many, many difficulties. And, and this author says it's just, it's really a, a, a huge task to take on. Books are written on this single subject alone. Books, books and books and books. You can get tons of different authors all saying, let's see if we can line up all the, the datings. And one goes this way, and one goes this way, and one goes this way, and they all, you know. The good thing is you can generally get into the ballpark. And as long as you're not a stickler for every single thing, it, it, it's enough. For a Bible student whose higher calling is to learn the principles of God and our relationship with him, not what date it was, it, then it doesn't matter. What is really good, though, I think, and what I think has been really fun, is when you do line up the two records, the Kings and the Chronicles, for instance, this week what we saw in chapter in 1 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 18 is the record that was written by these two authors. Now, whether they were the same author or not, I don't know, and nobody really does, but it's almost word for word. Maybe one used the other one as one of its records. And then, he, and then both of them, they often say, and are not the rest of the writings found in the Chronicles of the Kings. So these are not, this is not speaking of Second Chronicles. It's speaking of another writing called the Chronicles, which I don't think we even have in history anymore. They're gone. All right, so that gives you a little bit of a, of a setup to pull us into where we want to go. So let's do this. Let's go through Second Chronicles 17. And let's see if we can just look at the things, since we know that Chronicles is written to primarily focus on the spiritual qualities, right? The successes and failures, and it gives most of our details about what those spiritually righteous acts were. So let's look to see what is God recording as the spiritual righteous acts of Jehoshaphat, okay? So in 2 Chronicles 17, we know the major person in there is Jehoshaphat as the king, right? He was the son of who? Asa, how did Asa do as far as his kingship was concerned? 
He was a good king. He, he, he started really well, and he tend, tended to falter slightly. Do you guys remember what were some of the problems as, at the end of his life? Oh, yeah. For one thing, he had an ailment in his feet, and instead of seeking the Lord, he went to physicians. But he never even sought the Lord on it, is what the Word of God tells us. That's pretty amazing. I don't know about you guys, but as soon as I had my little owie on my hand, I was seeking the Lord on it. I'm going, Lord, this really hurts. <laughs> Can you just, like, take away some of this pain a little bit, right? He says, sure, go take a pill. <laughs> Motrin. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying it's, I mean, to me, the first, the first thing to do would be to seek the Lord, but Asa did not. So that was one little um, insight that was given to us about him as a king and who he, wa who he was that just gave us insight into him as a man, right? Okay. And what was the other thing that he did? He did. He went and made a covenant with Ben-Hadad, I think was his name, in Aram. Now, where is, what is Aram called today? Syria. Syria. So he makes a, a, a covenant with the king of Syria, and then um, in doing that, what's the problem? Okay, well, not only were there covenants being made on top of covenants, which makes it rather complicated, right? But what had God told Israel concerning making covenants? Not to make, now why? What's the problem? And, and ultimately, the scripture was really clear. What was Asa's big sin? He wasn't trusting the Lord. So what did Asa do? Asa was trusting the king of another nation, of a pagan nation, of a, of a foreign nation, of a Gentile nation who was trusting him to come to his aid rather than trusting the Lord. So that was his ultimate problem, right? Okay, so now this is Asa. Although Asa did, did make some mistakes and he tended to wane some in his faith, we do see, though, that the scripture on the whole says that Asa did good. He walked with the Lord, right? And, and in his death, God honored him. He had a burial and many very large bonfires. <laughs> According to them, that was a good thing. <laughs> right. Now, that's a good question. Okay. Margaret just opened up another bucket of worms. Okay. Asa did walk faithfully with the Lord. And she said, well, and the proof of that is her, his son. Okay. Yes. Is it always true, though, that a good king will produce a good child? What happened with David? He had not only Solomon, but he had a variety of other children, too. And, and these kids were rebellious. They were wild. They were unruly. They were, and they were, um, what is the right word? They were, well, they were jealous of one another, and they were seeking to usurp the throne against the word of the Lord, even though every one of them knew that the word of the Lord was that Solomon was to inherit that kingdom. And so these, so there was, is it, is it always true then that a child, just because a mother or a father is godly, does that mean your children will be godly? No. So we are learning that as well. It's another little subtlety of, of insight that you can pull out of the things that we're looking. 
what makes the difference? What does make the difference as far as who becomes godly and who doesn't? Kathleen. Mm-hmm. But what makes, for instance, um, uh, an Asa who followed, was it Basha? Who did he follow? I can't remember what, who was before him. But I mean, how do you, how do you, what if you have an ungodly father and then you're followed by a godly son? How, how does that happen? Do we see it today in our world today that there are families whose parents are are very godly and their children just absolutely reject everything? Do we also see the reverse that sometimes ungodly parents it can be actually the worst example there is out there um, and their children can be and uh, can you think of some some po- really popular ones that their children, their, you know, I think about, um, who was the one that did the um, Roe versus Wade? And then her son became a very strong evangelical. That, am I right on that? Okay, wrong one. I'm sorry, say it again. She turned. But I remember there was someone who was like really pro-abortion and then her son became a a very strong believer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. So she was an atheist and her son was a Christian, a strong Christian, and actually a (laughs) pro-lifer to the point of... In other words, she was on opposite extremes. And so you see this in the world all the time. And so even though I know, Margaret, that wasn't your point. Your point was his, he had had a good influence on his son. And, and he should, as a matter of fact. Proverbs says what? Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he shall not depart from it. The wise saying. They can. They certainly can be. On occasion, the, the preacher's children or the missionary kids, sometimes they're the worst of the worst, aren't they? Because why? Well, sometimes I think it's the way we as individual Christians, Maybe. we're putting them up here on a pedestal. We're not letting them be like our children. Maybe. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of every individual, now if we're taking, because we are talking in these lessons about a national covenant. We're talking about kings and kingdoms and how they're operating underneath God. And it's not talking about salvation of an individual. It's talking about um, a national um, representation, you know, before the world, who God is, trying to pr- portray God to the world, right? But when you take it down to the individual, and so we're backing it up to us personally, what makes the difference in in each individual's life, whether you've had a good example in your home or whether you've had a bad example in your home. How do you individually come into faith? (laughs) It comes down to each individual bowing their own knee, right? It is a personal decision. And so no individual can blame even their circumstance, can they? 
How, how many years have you seen, even in our TV, particularly in our media, how it's always the parents' fault, right? The pa if the parents had, and look at our court systems, you know, well, if, if their life hadn't been so bad, they wouldn't have become a mass murderer, you know, or a serial killer. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, God says, he, he judges every man based on their own sin. And every man has a responsibility to give an account to God at some point. And so when we look at the individuals as we're looking through the progression of these kings and kingdoms, if we back up though a little bit, don't talk about the personal relationship of it, but talk about it from the national perspective of it. How important is it that, the, that there be a national um, image and um, example because one of the things I thought was interesting is it talked about David in this last chapter and it says his example followed his example did you catch that did you guys happen to pick up on that where previously it's been saying and he walked in the ways of his father David but this time it says and he followed the example of David did anybody catch that Notice that? If not, when you see it again, you might want to circle it or write it out on the outside. Because I do think this falls back to the, the author's purpose in what we're looking at here. The point to this author is to show you what happens in, with a nation if it's led with godliness. And what the people tend to do if they have a national leader who is godly. Right? And the fact that then God holds that national leader in a great deal of responsibility as well to do so, to, to show that example of godliness. Okay, so let's go look at Jehoshaphat's godliness. Let's see what he did. Chapter 17, what is going on in this particular chapter? I can't get hold. Yoshiko, can you pull that lid off for me? Thank you. <laughs> I can't put pressure on that finger to pull that lid off. All right, I'm sorry, go ahead. Wasn't that awesome that he actually set up a, a religious training system within Judah so that the people would come to know the laws of God and the commandments of God? So it was in this particular chapter in verses 1 and 2. Did you see? Take a look and see what you see in there. So it says, Asa's son Jehoshaphat became king, and he followed what? He followed the example of David. So there's that example again that, that I was mentioning earlier. So we see Jehoshaphat. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> David's example. Okay, so I'll go down to three then, just in case. Okay, so Asa's son Jehoshaphat became king, and he followed David's example. Um, and because he followed David's example, because he did write, and he did according to the, the faith of David, what do we see in verses 3 to 6 about that? And, and, and you can actually even say, so... <laughs> The Lord established. 
I know, except that I, I backed it up. I'm going to, I'm just using three in both because this example is in verse three, but the next paragraph actually, see, I would have, I would have just left that at two, even though that statement's in the next one. It's kind of like a lead on, you know what I'm saying? Um, Jehoshaphat, his son, then became king in his place and made his position over Israel firm. He placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had captured. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because, why? He followed the example of his father, David. So he followed David's example and the Lord established his kingdom. That actually, right there, and to me, I don't know about what precept uses as its major key verses for everything that's going on in these books. But I almost think those two verses right there could be what what I would call the book theme verses for the whole book, because if you follow the the example of of David, then God will establish the kingdom. And you could actually just mark that and, and say, you know what, that's going to be my book theme verses. Because I think that would, they would, they kind of culminate it very nicely in those two places right there. Okay. Um, and, he's, and he established the kingdom in his control. Okay, now in 7 to 9, what do you see Jehoshaphat doing? This is where you were talking about Margaret earlier. Yeah, interesting to teach, to teach the things of the people. Um, how early did Jehoshaphat do this? How soon in his kingdom did he get around to doing this? In the third year, so almost immediately. You know that the first couple of years it takes that long to, and they don't tell us about it, but you know that there's this, it's kind of like with the new presidents. So you have to establish your own cabinets, and you have to get people in place, and you have to set, certain people of authority over certain things. It takes a, a couple of years to get your, your kingdom set up and running. And then the very first thing he does then after that, after he gets the essentials in place, is he makes sure that the kingdom is learning about the law of the land. Now, why would he be doing that? Why was it necessary? Or why did he feel it was an important thing to set up teaching schools around Judah? That's right. Right. That's right. Exactly. Even though Asa had done some of that himself, um, it's a, every, every ruler has to come in and set it up for themselves under their own authority. Just as we're seeing right now in our own United States with the new presidency, and it requires that they go in and they get their own cabinet people, people that they trust, people that, that will be faithful and loyal to them, right, so that they can trust that the orders that they give and that they send out will be accomplished, correct? And so it, the, that first couple of verses shows us that there's just a strategy that had to take place on the practical level first. And once that was set in place, then the very first thing he does, though, is to teach the people uh, the scriptures. And again, the reason is, one of the shortfallings of almost every one of these kings that talks about, some of them says that, say that they follow David, but what, what is the one thing that almost all of them failed to do? 
remove the high places. Um, tell me what you think about the, not removing the high places. How serious of a problem is that? Yeah. So what does that mean? So what, what is being said there? Where it says in one place he's removing them, but in another place, but there were still some high places. What? <laughs> it doesn't matter how many times you rip down those high places, what's going to happen? Someone's going to come behind you and put one up again. So it doesn't mean that he's not making an attempt to bring down the high places. Um, and it doesn't mean that Asa didn't even attempt to bring down some of those high places. But the people, because they're so rebellious and because you can't get all the people on board, he's, it's going to be a con, it's kind of like dirty dishes in the kitchen sink. They never get done, right? And that's why we have to go out and teach the people because it's taking down the high places and he's got to teach them why. And, you know, we instruct them in the way. Right, right. You know, I, th there are... You know, we talk about sometimes even things in, in our world today. There are so many things that I think as Christians we often get on board with and do that if we were instructed about what it is that we are actually doing, we would stop doing that. I mean, uh, certain rituals that we participate in. You, Lisa and I are on the same board on this. Yes, yes, I know. See, I have such a hard time with Halloween. I'm just, I'm absolutely despise that holiday and if anybody would ever research it and study it they would understand that this is not a, a good thing and you should never participate in it but yet the people continue why because they're not instructed the churches are not instructing and if the church won't instruct guess what people do they keep doing it and that's what we're seeing here with Jehoshaphat. He's actually sending his, his teachers out, the priests and the, and the scribes and so forth, he's sending them out amongst the people to train them. Bible studies like the one that we're in right here, this is, what, this is our bread and butter to faith walking. Without this, how do you know how to please the Lord? How do you know when you are treading on eggshells with God? Yes. Well, I think that in his case, it's not that he's not removing them. I think he is removing them. And then people are coming behind him and putting them back up. That's what I think is going on. Right. So you've got a godly king who's doing his best. And every time he makes a, a, a rule or he gives an order, someone comes behind him and says, we're not going to do that. And we don't like that. And we don't think you have the legal authority to make us do that. So we're just not going to do it. And so, you know, that's what's going on. <laughs> I think it's interesting It's very interesting. I think, you know, got to remember, Israel's very unique in that they are a nation whose religion is their law, the law of their land. And in America, we don't have that. 
America, we have a government which is secular, but we have a re- each of us independently have a religion that we adhere to, whatever it is. And in this group, we're all Christian, right? So we adhere to Christ- to Christian faith system, and that's our religion. But religion and politics are separate. Are they separate in Israel? No, their religion is their politics. This is one of the problems that we're having with um, those who practice jihad with with um, Islam, because in the Islamic faith, their religion is their politics, and their politics is their religion. You cannot divide them. They don't have a religion, and then they have a government. Their government is their religion, and that's why we have such an issue with separating good and bad in that scenario, because we're thinking like Americans rather than thinking like a reality check. Israel was like that. Their religion is their politics, and God expected them to walk in certain ways, live. Remember when we, were, we did Leviticus and then when we did Ezekiel, what we saw the people having to do, I mean, they had to, they were required to, to attend certain feasts every year and to present their, their sacrifices in a very specific way and only at a certain place. And um, I mean, so it was, and on even their daily living was about, cleansing and presenting themselves before the priests and not becoming um, defiled, right, by touching certain things. It was, so their, all their laws were religious laws, right? All right, so in 7 to 9 then, we have, he sent them out to teach the, I got it. Okay. He sent officials to teach. To Judah. Okay. That's a good king. He, he was doing really good there. 10 to 12, what did he do? Say it again. Isn't that amazing? Now, again, back to Deuteronomy when God gave them the blessings and the cursings. What did God say would happen if the people would be obedient and would follow him? They would give him peace all around, and he would put the dread of the Lord upon them, upon the nations. And that's exactly what he's doing here, the dread of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord came on all the kingdoms around Judah. And and then what did those kingdoms also do? They brought tribute. Now think about Solomon, because this is a subject that came up back when we were first doing Solomon. Remember when God gave Solomon wisdom? And God says, and because you did not ask for riches and glory and so forth, I will also give those things to you, right? And then Solomon very quickly did what? He went about doing what for himself? Amassing the wealth and amassing the treasures and amassing these, all these horses and so forth, right? How, however, what do you see in this particular record here? Did Jehoshaphat go about amassing wealth and amassing tribute and amassing? No. What did God do? He prov- Can you see here a picture of what God could have done for Solomon if Solomon had waited upon the Lord? God could have blessed him. And this is a beautiful cross-reference. It, it, it's like, Solomon, you could have learned something from this guy. Jehoshaphat would have been a great example for, 
or a person like Jehoshaphat would have been a great example. In you and I's life, do are there scenarios in our lives that are like this where we know the Lord has made a promise to us. It, it's, some, it's personal. It's something in your personal private life, but you feel the Lord has promised something to you. Is there danger in us getting ahead of God and trying to force God to accomplish some of those things? Pardon? Yeah? Explain. Yeah. Yeah. He went, so, yeah, instead of waiting on God to bring a child through his wife, Sarah, he went into his handmaiden, and in, in, as a result, he had this child, Ishmael. And what do we know about Ishmael and his bloodline thereafter? The Arabs, and they have been a pain in this, a thorn in the side of, of the um, Israelites all their, all their days, right? Yeah, all because it got ahead of God. Okay, so in verses 10 to 12 of Second Chronicles 17, the fear of the Lord came on all the kingdoms around Judah, and they brought tribute. So we see God protecting Jude, uh, Judah and blessing them. And they brought tribute. Okay, and then 13 to 19, what did he do on the spiritual level? What happened there? It was, a, again, we see the Lord doing something. What is he doing? We saw him bring, bringing the tribute, and they brought tribute. And then in verses 13 to 19, He's about to, it talks a lot about valiant warriors and about, um, interesting to me was, did you, anybody happen to add that all up? 1,160,000, right? So, so you're talking over a million men, and then how many generals? Did you count them? Five generals and 1,160,000 valiant warriors, all in the very small land place called Judah. <laughs> that is some big power going on, wouldn't you say, that God is really doing that? And, then in, and it gives a conclusion there in verse 12, and it says what? He became greater and greater, and he built, these, the, he built the fortresses and the storehouse, uh, cities in Judah. Oh, I should have, that should have been 11, All right? Sorry. And then 12 to 19. So he grew greater and greater. Again, it makes me think of Solomon, where Solomon, if he had been patient and waited on the Lord, the Lord would have done this for him, greater and greater. And he had the, this, this military power behind him that made him powerful, in the nations around them that were watching. Yes. Yeah. 
When a nation is strong and following the Lord, the Lord blesses them. And if they're following the Lord, they're promoting and advocating peace in the world. And that's why you want a nation who loves God and follows God to, to do exactly that so that then hopefully peace is promoted. And because they're powerful then, because God blesses them, they have the, they have the muscle behind what, who they are as a people to enforce peace, which is what we want. That's exactly right. And they, again, Solomon should have learned from that, right? It's so sad. Every time I think about Solomon, it makes me just sad because he really messed up. Okay, let's go to 1 Kings 22. What, what, how did you title 17, by the way? Let me title that one for you. Okay, that's a good one. Jehoshaphat sought God. And then, and then you can follow it with, and the Lord did what? There you go. And the Lord established his kingdom. Because after all, that is the author's purpose, is for us to come to see what happens when a king is godly and follows the Lord, and then what, what is God's response? We are learning who is God who is man? In this case, who are the kings under God? And, and what is that relationship about? What is the dynamics that are going on between the two of them? God, in covenant with Israel, has said, if you, if you follow me and if you obey me, I will bless you. And that's exactly what we saw happen with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat sought the Lord, and then the Lord established his kingdom in his hand, made him strong. All right, Second uh, Kings 22. Let's go to 2 Kings 22 to start with. Okay. Jehoshaphat and Ahab. This, is, this was interesting to me. Just a tiny bit of, of insight. It says, the king of Judah, meaning Jehoshaphat, he came down to the king of Israel. And then the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that... Uh, Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, What? I am yours, and you are my people as your people. My horses are your horses. Now, what is he saying there? We are in covenant. Did anybody do any research to find out what this covenant was about? How did Israel end up in a covenant with Judah? Okay, well, did anybody know what the marriage is? Who married who? Jehoshaphat didn't. There you go. His son married the daughter of Ahab. Can you believe? Think about this, guys, just for half a second. I know, I cannot either. Ahab is, we know who Ahab is, right? He's most evil of all the kings so far that we've looked at. 
And his daughter has now married the, the son of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, who finally we have a really strong, powerful, godly leader. And what does he do? He allows a covenant to take place between these two kingdoms, and he aligns them together. Does any scripture verse come to your mind? Thou shalt not do that. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? What's wrong with the godly marrying the ungodly? That's right, because bad company corrupts good morals, right? Well, you have to research it to find that. That's what I'm saying. You have to look for it. It doesn't give you those details. You'd have... Is it in uh, Chronicles, the other Chronicles? I know it says that they married, but it didn't give you the details about it. It doesn't say who married. It just says they married, right? I remember that. Yes, I do remember that. In Second uh, Chronicles 18.1, Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. But what happens there is your mind says, oh, he married somebody of Ahab's family, but it wasn't him. It was his son. So that's where you have to do some research to find that out. Yeah. Okay. Don't you know that he probably did? Um, interesting to me, too, again, here we are back to a moral dilemma. We've got a king who's a good guy. He's a good king. Um, is it a bad dream for him to want to see Israel united again under one kingship? No. Um, but where does he go wrong on this? Well, maybe he obviously, I would say not only maybe, but it is obvious he did not seek the Lord on this. Now, we see here in a couple of minutes, he's going to actually challenge Ahab on something, and he wants to inquire of the Lord, right? But when it came to the marriage of his son to the daughter of Ahab, obviously he did not inquire of the Lord. What do you think the, the Lord would have said about that? He would have said absolutely not. And the answer would be why? What does the godly have to do with the ungodly? What does righteousness have to do with unrighteousness? What does light have to do with darkness? Those are in 1 Corinthians, right? And in 2 Corinthians. So those are in the New Testament. They, they, they reinforce that this standard has never changed. So if you have children or grandchildren who are dating, what should they never date? Unbelievers. If you're training your, ch your children, if you're raising them, and if your grandchildren, even if, if, if you're not positive where they stand with the Lord, but if they have a, a profession that they attend church and that they're seeking God, and maybe they're just on this journey into their faith with God, you're not sure where they're at, but you know that's where they're headed because it's what you're teaching them and it's what you're demonstrating to them. So your instruction to your children should be what concerning unbelievers? Do not marry them. Do not go there. Do not find people who are of other faiths or no faith, right? Because that is going to be the road to destruction for your child or your grandchild. Right? So this is what Jehoshaphat apparently did not do with his own son. Now, so he did make one bad mistake. So in, let's go back to 1 Kings 1 to 4. What happens there? Judah does what? What happens with Judah? 
what happens in one to four? I need to hear somebody's title. Did you guys title your paragraphs? Okay. Okay, joined him in battle. Or Okay, he joins with Israel against Aram. Okay, Judah joins with Israel. And they, they go against Aram. And you can just say in battle, that would be more generic, but the, I just actually n named the players in it. So, Okay, and 5 to 14 then, what happens? This is interesting. We've got these prophets. Now, it doesn't call them false prophets, does it? How do you come? Huh? That's right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> conclusion. That's a good analytical conclusion. It talks about the prophets. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. So these would be the prophets of Israel. And what do we know as far as worship is going on in Israel? It's false worship, right? So you're absolutely right, Lisa. The conclusion would be that these would be the false worships. Now, these are not speaking, in case you didn't catch it, this is not speaking of the Baal prophets. Like we had earlier where we looked at um, Elijah when he went up against the prophets of Baal. These are the prophets of Israel. So they're the ones who are at those places that Jeho um, Jeroboam set up with the golden calves, and they were a substitute uh, worship system for the Yahweh. So they were claiming to worship Yahweh, but they're doing it in front of golden calves with all new system of worship. So they had replaced the true worship with something that was similar. And then they were calling it that. So these are the false. So we've got Ahab's false prophets, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have the hero prophets. In the middle of this. Yeah. In, in five, so it starts out with the, the false prophets. Um, what, what is the essence of the storyline here? What's going on here with Ahab? He's trying to convince them to go to battle. Right. Honestly, they, they, go, they, do, they want to go to battle. They want to get, they want to win back this, this one prized city. Um, I think he wants to build Jehoshaphat. I think so too because he, he let, Jehoshaphat let Israel Maybe. The premise, the pre it may have been a, it doesn't say that in the text though, so that's a, that's a drawn conclusion. However, um, what we do know is he certainly did set Jehoshaphat up to get killed, right, with the disguise that was going on. But, but initially what was going on there was Ahab's prophets, um, he inquires of them whether or not he should go into this battle at all. Now, why is the inquiry even made at all? Because of Jehoshaphat, who wants to inquire of the Lord. And so when Jehoshaphat hears, this is interesting to me because it doesn't explain it. You have to do have to draw some conclusions. But when Jehoshaphat hears these false prophets make their prediction saying, yes, king, go, Ahab, go, go, boy, you're going to win. You're going to be successful. It's all going to be good, right? But, but um, Jehoshaphat hears the prophets say, yea, go, King Ahab, and he immediately is repelled by this. He's like, wait a minute. I, first of all, I just don't believe it. Now, to me, this posed a question in my mind. How does he know these prophets are not true prophets and that they're not telling the truth? 
If they call themselves prophets of God, what does this tell you about Jehoshaphat's discerning and his knowledge of who these men are? So he has re he's recognizing, this is interesting, he recognizes them as false prophets, but yet he let his son go into a marriage with a king and a daughter of a false system. So it's kind of like on the one hand he knows stuff, on the other hand he's just really stupid. <laughs> How common is that for most of us? Do we sometimes have it all together in one area of our life, but then we totally lose it in another? Is it possible for people to be blinded about certain things? In, in, for instance, in the case of the allied marriage, the marriage allying the two, wh what do you think was Jehoshaphat's hope? That the kingdoms would reunite, right? Um, where does he go wrong, though? Yes. Instead of waiting on the Lord or asking the Lord or seeking God to find out, he, he jumps into this big plan, I've got a plan. It's kind of like what Solomon did with the building of the temple. David had prepared many of the supplies and all the things. The essentials that he needed were already there for him. But what did he want? He wanted cedars of Lebanon. So in order to get the cedars of Lebanon, in order to make this grandiose statement on his part, he has to do what? Make a covenant with the king of, of Tyre. And so here we have almost the same kind of thing where Jehoshaphat wants to see the kingdom united. That's a good thing. Building the temple, that was a good thing. But in order to get the, the, ends to, the means to the end was not good, right? You cannot make covenants with kings of foreign nations or kings who do not worship uh, the Lord. Right? So in this case, that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. He's making the same mistake Solomon did in this one particular point. And now he's got himself in a bind because he's in covenant relationship. Yep, and he's obligated. He obligated. Absolutely. So if you know anything about covenants, you know he's obligated. He can't even get out of it. Mm -hmm. I Yeah, because the covenant was with the daughter, the marriage. And both of those were in uh, Jehoshaphat's first year. Oh. Wait a second. Say, give me your two places that you're showing me. Verse. Two. Uh-huh. Okay. 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 Back to here's. I'm just going to go back, Margaret. Don't try to do the year stuff. Don't try to figure it out. <laughs> All you want to do is get progression of order. What we know is there has been a covenant made between his daughter and his son. In the third year, so this has to do with three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. And in the third year of no war between those two people, then this next thing happened. Okay, thank you. That, uh -huh. that was really bothering me. <laughs> Don't let the years bother you. Just look past them. Yes. In Second Chronicles 18, too, it says some years later. 
Some years later, right, exactly. And if you go back and ask, if you really want to do timelining, I had a girlfriend who talked about this. She did this series years ago. And then after the fact, after she'd done all of her homework and done all the series, and she went back and she tried to do the chronolog, she gave up. She got about halfway through it and she said, I give up. She was so frustrated, she just couldn't even, she was pulling her hair out. Because she couldn't make everything line up the way it was supposed to, even though she could get a lot of it lined up. You, and you can get a lot of it lined up. You certainly can get it in a sequential order, and some of it is logical. You just know this had to happen first, and then this would follow. But <clears throat> getting the, the dates that they're mentioning, you got to remember they're using different records. Some of the records are from the Chronicles of the Kings. Some of the records are from the writings of the Jews. Some of the writings, are, some of the records are from uh, the palace of, the, of whatever king that they're in at the moment. So there's all these varying factors. Mm-hmm. Well, and it even says it in the very first verse. It's, it lays it out that that's what it's talking about. No, no, because it says three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. Yeah. Okay, so now let's move on. So Ahab's false prophets, they send him where? They send Ahab where? Yeah, basically to his death, right? And they send him to his death because they say, yes, go, go, go. God's going to be with you and you're going to be successful. But the truth is what? Where do we get the truth? What does Micaiah say in 15 to 18? He has a vision, right? This prophet of God. So these are the false prophets. I colored them in a dark color, right? And then I gave Micaiah his horn in purple because he's a good guy. And that's royalty and of the Lord. So that was my thinking on that. So Micaiah... M-I-C-H-A-I-A-H. I know, Micaiah, I'm sorry. M-I-C-A-I-A-H. M-I-C-A-I-A-H. I know there's an H in there somewhere. <laughs> okay, so Micaiah has a vision, right? What is his vision about? What does he say? tell the king that he sees? <laughs> A sheep without a shepherd. All right. And? Okay. So his vision basically is symbolic. It's a picture, right? Picturesque of these sheep. And he sees Israel without a shepherd. Correct? That's the vision the Lord gives him. Then he gives interpretation and he says about... Um, Micaiah then said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Now he's going to give you the interpretation of it in verse 19. And what does he say that he saw? Yeah, and this is a cool picture, you guys. What's going on here? Who approaches the throne and and who says what to whom? How can we incite, there's a spirit, this is an evil spirit, right? And he approaches the Lord. Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall? What does that word fall mean? 
die, <laughs> put a little tombstone on top of that word fall, who's going to entice Ahab to go up and fall at, at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while the other said that, and then a spirit, meaning an evil spirit, came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. Maybe this is even Satan himself. It doesn't say to us, but it, it's an evil spirit. And then the Lord said to him, how? And this spirit said, I will go out and be what? A deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Very interesting, because what are we seeing a picture of here? What's going on? What are we learning about God and about the spiritual warfare that goes on in our world? That's exactly right. And he stands before the throne of God and he accuses the brethren day and night, right? Until that day that comes when God will cast him down to the earth and he will no longer be able to accuse the brethren, us, before God. So here we see a deceit. Now, what else is Satan referred to when we, when we see uh, identifying verses about him? He's the liar and the father of lies, right? So he is a deceiving spirit and a liar. And so this lying spirit, this deceiving spirit says, I will go, I will go out, and I will be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Now, if you didn't know his prophets were bad guys, you do now, right? Because these prophets are going to be a Can God's prophets have a deceiving spirit within them? No, because who dwells within them? The spirit of God. And he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And so you cannot have two, a, a divided house, God says. If his spirit is present, the deceiving spirit of, of the Antichrist or of, or not the Antichrist, of um, Satan rather, or of a deceiving spirit, they will, will not be present. Mm -hmm. And also there is a, I want to point out, there is a prophet of God in the middle of these ungodly people. Yes. Yes, and this happened a lot, and very interesting is right when, when you follow after this, he said, um, you will entice him and also prevail. So interesting, the deceiving spirit has to, what do you see going on here as far as authority? Who's got the authority and who has to do what? Yeah, this is exactly the Job story, isn't it? If you go back to Job chapter 1 and 2, you see Satan going and appearing before the throne of God and asking permission that he might go and test Job. I know. Yeah. So who's... Very interesting. Now tell, okay, so now the subject would be about God and testing. What are testings in our lives about? Why does God allow testing? Why does God actually see them as good, not bad? What do testings do for us according to James? They, 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 and perseverance, where is that verse? I don't remember. In the very first part of James, it talks about how, how testings produce endurance, and endurance, perseverance, and perseverance, and it goes on and on and on, right? Maturity. Maturity, yeah. And so here we see a great example. This is a beautiful demonstration of what goes on in the heavenly realms when it comes to spiritual warfare and testings. Testings, what we're seeing here, are actually from the Lord. 
So God is testing who? He's te testing Ahab. And he's saying, go to Ahab, put, put, a put a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets, and let's see if he'll bite off on it. What does Ahab know? He knows they're lying. And also, Ahab, at one point, we saw Ahab in a previous chapter where he had shown him a measure of humiliation before the Lord, right? Where he had humbled himself. So he does have a knowledge of God. And certainly he has a knowledge of God also because we see that when Jehoshaphat says, let's inquire of the Lord. Jehoshaphat mentions this Micaiah, right? This prophet Micaiah, who is actually a prophet of the Lord. Yeah, I don't like this guy. He doesn't like me, and he never prophesies good for me. So I don't want to even see this guy. As a matter, very interesting. Where is this prophet? He's in. He's in. He's in Israel. But actually, he's in Samaria, and he has to go get him. Right? I want you all to see this because I talked to you guys about this last week, just briefly. Um, he says in the next segment. He says then. Uh, Zedekiah, the son of Chenahah, whatever it says, came near and he struck Micaiah on the cheek. So here we see him slapping him, right? He is the leader of the false prophets, apparently. And he says, how did the spirit of the Lord pass from me and speak to you? What a joke, right? This guy's claiming that he had the spirit of the Lord in him. And then Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on the day that you enter into an inner room and you hide yourself. In other words, it's going to be proven to you that what I'm saying is true. And you're going to remember what I have spoken. And when you see it happen, you're going to, you're going to recognize that what I'm saying is true. And then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and do what with him? Did you catch that word, Return. Return him to Amon, the governor of the city, and to, the, and to uh, Joash, the son's king, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. If you go back to 1 Chronicles 16.10, or 2 Chronicles 16.10, rather, we had an unnamed prophet before. In Asa's life, 16, hold on, 1610, and he came to, a this prophet came to Asa, and this is where that very famous quote is, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He says, and then he says to Asa, you have acted foolishly in this, indeed from now on, you will surely have wars. So he's telling him that he's, he's rebuking him. And Asa became so angry with this prophet. What does he do with him? He put him in prison. Very interesting. I'm wondering, do you suppose this is the same prophet? Do you think it might still be Micaiah? I'm sorry, say that again. I don't know. I missed it. Did, well, go back and look real quick, because I'd be cu curious to see that. Is Micaiah there? Ah, interesting. Okay, well, very interesting to me, though, that it says, and return him to Amon, the governor of the city, 
and to Joash, the king's son, and then put him in prison. It sounded to me like he was going back to, he had been in prison, he was going back to prison. And I wondered if he was, if he had been there before because, but of course it wouldn't have been Asa though, because that's a different kingdom. He's of Judah. Yeah, I think I connected it to the wrong place. But I just thought it was interesting that it said he was returning him back to him. So it almost sounds like Micaiah has been in trouble with this king before and had apparently maybe even been imprisoned before by him. For one thing, he makes mention, he says, I don't like the things that he says to me. And we see for sure with Asa, when he heard something from a a prophet he didn't like, he put him in prison. So now here we have another king in a different kingdom. Now I realize that. So, but this king, this king does the same thing when he didn't like what he was saying. Apparently he put him in prison because he sent for him. He knew exactly where to find him. He went and got him, brought him out. Then he says, now return him. So I think he's going back to prison. Probably was there from before when he spoke to him and said something he didn't like. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and that's exactly, and that is what we are, we as God's children are called to do too, regardless of the consequence, we are to always speak truth, and we're always to stand up for God and his righteous principles, whatever they are. Is it easy? No, it's not always easy. As a matter of fact, often you can find that people will reject you, people will shun you, people will make fun of you, you may lose friends, you may, um, you may be ridiculed. I can tell you, it's, in my life, I've had, and I bet you have too, have had that happen, where people just, you know, even in your own family, and sometimes it's worse in your own family, because they do not understand people who follow God and have a faithful commitment, have righteous standards. They think you're just so judgmental and so legalistic and so such a Jesus freak or a Bible thumper or whatever they call you these. I don't know what they call them these days, but loving their, loving their Bibles, you know? Yeah. Yes, they do. Isn't that interesting? But when they're in trouble, guess who they call on? <laughs> All right. I didn't look that up. I didn't have time to look that one up. The king's son. That's going to be Ahab's son, right? So um, to Joash, the king's son. Let me look back here and see one, one quick minute. Um, Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter, but I don't remember what the name was. I had written it down at one time somewhere. I don't remember if his if um, Jehoshaphat's son is if his name is Joash or not. I don't think so, but it could be. Have to look it up. Okay. Okay. So it's not him. Right. It has to be Ahab's son. So Ahab had an, a son named Joash. Okay? See, these are, the, these are the things that are not in your homework, but if you're curious, you should look them up. Just do a Google or do a word search on that name. Just look it up in your, um, in your exhaustive concordance.
Let's see if you can figure that part out. Okay, so Micaiah's vision. Now, very interesting. Ahab, what did Ahab think about Micaiah's vision? What did he call it? I just think this is very interesting. Micaiah has this vision, and then he gives an interpretation of the vision, right? And, he has, and what has Ahab just said about why he didn't like Micaiah? Because he never tells him anything good. He only says bad, evil things against him. So what he's in essence saying is that Micaiah's vision in that, in that word from the Lord, when Micaiah says, hear, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, Micaiah says about Micaiah's prophecy and vision that it's a word of evil against him so he's calling God's word a word of evil against him that's how Ahab interprets a true prophet's message I think that speaks volumes to telling us a little bit about the heart of Ahab at this point we see him looking and hearing the word of God how many of you have ever had a a situation where you have given the word of God scripture to someone and they, they revile against you in it. And they think that what you're saying is either a lie or that you're just too, you, you're taking it too literal and they want to try to explain it. I mean, the, the subject of homosexuality comes up a lot, or at least it has in years past for me. And I can remember going in and finding scripture verses in the New Testament, not the Old, in the New Testament, that show that God judges homosexuality and that it is a sin. And people look at you like you've got two horns and and your face is painted red or something. They They just think you are so wrong on your interpretation. I can recall having conversations with my own family members who say, well, I think people are born with that. They can't help it. Right? It's something that they're born with. I'm going, then why does God judge it? If it's something you can't control and you're not, you're not able to, to fix and, and it's not your choice, why does God judge it and say it's an abominable thing and those who practice it will not enter into the gates of heaven? And you can't answer that, but then they're mad at you when you tell them that. They're angry. So here we see Ahab. This is exactly what happened. Micaiah has a vision. He's saying, I see a people without a shepherd. And then he says, hear the word of the Lord. And then then he goes on to explain, your prophets are lying to you. The Lord, I just saw it in a vision. God, show me the vision. And this is the word that God gave me. He told me that this lying spirit said, I will go and be a, a word in the mouth of his prophets. So he's just got it explained to him. And what does he do? Nope, it's a word of evil against me. Ahab knows the truth. Yes, he does. He says, uh, when, when Jehoshaphat says to him, isn't there a prophet of the Lord? He says, there's only one, and it's Micaiah. Yeah. So he knows the right one even, doesn't he? So he calls Micaiah. I know. That's funny. Right, because they just got through telling them, right. to do it. Yes. <laughs> so as soon as he says something bad, he goes, yep, that's from the Lord. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. I would say in my life, in your life, would you say that people, when you actually speak to them, even though they're mad at you, do you think they actually know that what you're saying is true? They may not want to admit it or accept it. They don't want to submit to it. But do, do they really know actually what you're saying is true? 
Yeah, certainly. Why do you think they're afraid of it? What's the fear? Well, what about Ahab? Why would he fear listening to the true prophet, Micaiah? Okay, and remember the scenario is he wants Jehoshaphat to go with him to conquer a city and possess it for himself, right? So he's not going to get what he wants if he confesses that it's truth. So in a lot of scenarios, people either they're, they're going to have to, they, in their mind, give something up, uh, authority, or they, they think their free will is going to be taken from them or something, or they're not going to get to do what they want to do, which is sin. And in the case of Ahab, this apparently um, is not from the Lord. The Lord is not sanctioning this. The Lord is actually using this whole scenario basically to reveal to Ahab his heart is evil and he's rebellious against the Lord, right? I think he's also using it to teach Jehoshaphat something. Don't get in bed with your enemies, right? And you did that by making this alliance that you shouldn't have made. But God is also very gracious, is he not, to, to Jehoshaphat? What does he do with Jehoshaphat? He actually rescues him in spite of the fact that Ahab set him up to actually take the fall, right? What do you think was in his mind? Why do you think he had this scenario set up where he would go in disguise and and Jehoshaphat would go in dressed in the king's array? Besides wanting to see Jehoshaphat killed, apparently, what do you think, what was the prophecy to Ahab? If you go, you're going to die, and the dogs are going to lick up your blood and so forth, right? And so what do you think he was trying to do by, by making it be Jehoshaphat that died and not him? Maybe to change the outcome? Interesting. Can you thwart the plan of God? If God, is, if God has declared a judgment or has declared a proclamation of any kind, whatever it is, can God's word be changed by your will? I think that's what this in here gives you a little lesson on prophecy. Because the prophet, the, the true prophet, is the prophecy of the now and the future events about a shepherd being lost. Mm-hmm. He has a vision, he has an interpretation. And then when he's dragged away into prison, he says, uh, You'll see. It comes true. I know. It says, in the day that you see this, that's when you're going to know what I'm saying is true. Exactly. I love it. We're getting to see. We're getting to see spiritual warfare. We're getting to see what goes on in the heavenly realms. In the in the in the kingdom. You you could stop right here and do a side study, which Kay didn't have us do. I think it would have been wonderful. Just do a little side study on spiritual warfare and, and the heavenlies and go into the into the Job passage and look and see this encounter between God and Satan and what was said. It would have been very interesting. Not only what he said about uh, Zedekiah, but he says, put him in prison until my safe Right, if it, and if you come back, then my word was not from the Lord. <laughs> okay, so we have Micaiah then prophesying disaster. For Ahab, right? 
And then in uh, 24 to 28, then we see Micaiah gets imprisoned because of his statements, because of his prophecy, right? So Ahab takes revenge against him in, in some ways because of his word of the Lord. Then what Ahab gets singled out. I'm trying to get this all up here for you guys so we don't have leave it totally blank. Life uh, is spared. Okay, so we have up to verse 33. Micaiah prophesied that disaster for Ahab. Then Micah gets imprisoned by Ahab because of his prophecy. And then Ahab basically sets up Jehoshaphat, right? He, Ahab, uh, he sing, Ahab, when Ahab gets singled out for death by the prophecy, Jehoshaphat's life is spared in 29 to 33. So 29 to 33. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. So they, now they go to this war, which he had been warned don't do. And the king says, I'm going to disguise myself. And then the king of Aram uh, had actually commanded that Ahab be singled out, right? And so they were looking for him, but because he was in disguise, they actually went after Jehoshaphat. And what happens with Jehoshaphat? The Lord spares his life, right? The Lord, because he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord, which is wise, right? And, and so then the Lord saves his life. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back. I think it's interesting. He cries out to God, and now all of a sudden the people see that he's not. So it's because he cried out to the Lord that identified him as not being Ahab, right? Because Ahab is such an evil dude. Everybody knows he's not going to call on Jehovah, right? And so... I think that's pretty interesting. No, but we know it's to the Lord and that the Lord saved him. Oh, it's in the other, it's in the parallel one. Okay, hold on a second. Let me look at this. Um, we are in 33. All right, so in verse 31 of Second Chronicles 18, so when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel, and they turned aside to fight against him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. That's what it says in Second Chronicles 18. So you get your commentary on it when you go into Second Chronicles 18. This is where, honestly, I'm telling... And verse 31, that's correct, of Second Chronicles 18. So this is why I loved doing this side-by-side -side parallel of these accounts because you got additional little points or insights when you made the comparison of the two storylines. She, she does, she does. But, but if you do it this way, it really becomes simple to see. And I, I will send this particular one to you so you can look at it just as an example. I think it's helpful to learn to do this, though, because if you don't, you miss so much. The other thing I thought found was interesting is when you go beyond this storyline, and we can keep going on this, we're out of time, but um, the end of the story is what? 
What, what comes at the end of it? Ahab died just as the Lord had said he would, right? So did he divert God's plan at all by going with this disguise for his, uh, his um, father-in-law's? basically the father and the other king he didn't and so even though he th apparently Ahab thought that he could trick fate or something and that Jehoshaphat would be killed instead of him but instead God interestingly still did it now how did that happen a random arrow it wasn't random at all, was it? And it struck into the right spot of the, of the armor which he had on and killed him. And he bled out in his chariot, and then the chariot is then taken into the city where they wash it at the, at the, at the uh, fountain. And it, who comes along? The dogs. And what hap what's fulfilled? The word of the Lord. The dogs lick up the blood of the king. So, again, you just see the power of God and his sovereign um, word and his sovereign authority over the kings and the kingdoms and the unfolding of events. Um, someone has asked me one time, though, about this regarding this, and it's just one last point I want to make. You know, is God manipulating people? Does God, it, does God force a person to do anything in order to accomplish what he, he has said will happen? So how does this game work? How does this work in the lives of humanity with, in relationship with the, with the Lord then? I'll say it again. Okay. Okay, so he's omnipresent. We know that. Okay. He, okay, so on one hand, you can say he already knows what's going to happen. Okay. But how does, when God says, I am decreeing against you and your house, I am going to utterly destroy you. And the dogs are going to lick up the blood of your, at your death, right? So he's made this very uh, specific prophecy against a certain person now how does God make that happen without interfering with free will of people how does he do that okay the, the answer is he does not interfere so what does he do well what did we just see for instance in the spiritual war warfare that just took place we had a lying spirit that said I know I know I'll go I'll speak through the mouth of the lying prophets, the prophets of Israel, and they will deceive him into going into this battle, correct? So are the prophets being forced to do something that they did not want to do? No, they're not. But, they, but because they were already had a darkened heart and have an agenda which is evil anyway. And they had already expressed earlier in the, in the storyline that they basically were saying anything that the king wanted to hear, right? And they tried to convince Micaiah when he came, please say like we have these things because this is going to please the king. Well, the king is mad at, the, at Micaiah because Micaiah won't ever tell him anything good, right? So what you see here in this is you see prophets who already are okay with lying and deceiving to a king, even though, as, as we said on the board, basically they set him up for death. Those false prophets, by lying to their king and telling him it was okay to go into battle and that he would be safe, they set him up for the fall. He wanted to hear it, and they were willing to give it. Is there anybody's free will that has been violated in that? No. 
ultimately, the guy goes into battle, and he is killed, but he's not killed, even though he tries to manipulate things with the disguise, right? Does that work? No. God still threw a random arrow, it says, that was, that was flung from the, and it doesn't even say who. They, it's like an anonymous young man shoots his arrow out into the, into the, the clear blue sky and just so happens to do what? Finds the joint in the... Now, who do you think did that? The Lord himself, right? So the lying prophets, the, lie, the spirit that was put in their mouth did not impede or, or usurp any of their own personal free will. God simply allowed the lying spirit to go and use the vessel of those who were already willing to be liars and were already willing to do bad things. You can make this application across the board on everything because... I actually had somebody not in our class text me this week and ask me this very question. Does God ever uh, impede free will in order to accomplish his, his word? If he has made a prophecy or declared something, does God intervene in free will? No. Well, they have had a choice. I mean, he knew Michael's vision. Mm-hmm. 